You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Welcome, Spot On listeners. Very excited to be here. And uh, the title of today's episode is, Did, Did We Drink Our Way Through the Pandemic? And um, uh, this is a very, very interesting situation we had during the pandemic. Gosh knows, I hope we never have this again. And, you know, I while we were through it and going through it and now hopefully coming out of it, I always said, you know, there were some good things that occurred during the pandemic. Let's not waste a good pandemic. You know, we had people were eating uh, more meals together with their families. There was hella health. All of a sudden became uh, acceptable. Home offices. I love it. But... I read an article in BU Today, and it kind of made me think a little bit about this. And it was all about um, alcohol consumption really spiked during the pandemic. And more importantly, is this the consequences? Are they going to outlast the pandemic? Are we going to keep doing this? And in this article, there was one alcohol expert who was quoted over and over and over again. And I said, that's it. I'm getting this man on spot on. And his name is Dr. David Jernigan. He's a professor here at Boston University, a Department of Health Policy, Law, and Management at the BU School of Public Health. And he is the guru. He's been working on alcohol policy for over 35 years. He's an advisor to the the World Health Organization. He had advised the World Bank. He's, you know, He's written 140, you got to be kidding me, peer-reviewed articles, seven book chapters, and three books. And the funniest thing that I, that I love about it, he himself has been quoted saying that he usually says that he knows more about alcohol than anybody really should. So that, that t- that's telling right there. So with that, I'd like to um, welcome Dr. David on Spot On. Thank you so much. So I'm excited to have you here, but I'm, I, I am was startled by this article. And this article, when I read it, was like, whoa. And there was an article in, in that you you stated in this article, a BU article, but in the Journal of the American Medical Association, that the frequency of alcohol consumption increased by 14% during COVID from the same year. But this is the one, Dr. David, that, that, that went, oh my. For women, there was a 40% jump increase in the number of heavy drinking days, which is defined as consuming four or more drinks within a couple of hours. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, we saw that. But then when I read this article, I started to look around at my environment. And I started to look around at the messaging through advertisements. And I want to dig a little deeper into this. So can you tell us, Dr. Alcohol Professional here, what happened during COVID? And and do you think uh, we're going to keep drinking like we're doing? Tell us more. Yeah. So what happened during COVID is in the first place, a lot of states, most states, declared alcohol sales to be an essential business. So the alcohol stores stayed open. A lot of the bars and restaurants had to shut down, which means that people were getting their 
alcohol off campus, grocery stores, convenience stores, liquor stores, and they were taking it home or somewhere else to drink it. So they were drinking it not in a supervised setting. And the pandemic put a lot of people under a lot of new kinds of stress. Drinking to deal with stress is not a good coping behavior. Uh, nonetheless, it appears that a substantial chunk of the population and particularly women started drinking more. This is similar to what we saw uh, in the wake of the World Trade Center, Hurricanes Rita and Katrina. And one to two years after those, what we saw was an uptick in alcohol use disorders among the populations closest to the disasters. That's what we're expecting to come out of the pandemic. And we already see that. Uh, we've already seen a substantial increase in uh, alcoholic liver disease in presentations for alcohol liver, alcoholic liver disease in major hospitals, again, particularly among women. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Dr. David, we, we did a whole episode in the first season of Spot On called, you know, I'll have another, the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of alcohol. And, you know, again, just to refresh our listeners' maybe memories here, is that women uh, don't metabolize alcohol as efficiently as men. Is that correct? That's correct. The same amount of alcohol will cause more effects, including more damage in a female than a male. As a colleague of mine says, we are democratically equal, but biologically unequal. Um, and the consequences for women, things like breast cancer, 15% of breast cancer cases are caused by alcohol. And a third of those in the US happen at less than a drink and a half a day. Right, right. So, you know, we often hear there's some maybe positive medical uh, association with you know moderate to a little bit of alcohol, but when we start getting into excess and we start using it to self medicate, as what as it appears has been what's happening during uh, the pandemic and maybe still going on, I I have to just you know question this when you when you just said something to me that the alcohol was deemed an essential, it, like liquor stores was an essential. That rained over. So in other words, it was the liquor store was as equally as important as the supermarket. Yeah. When you think about it in the pandemic. And what message does that tell us? Yeah. I mean, the best explanation for that is that they didn't want emergency rooms flooded with people who were going into alcohol withdrawal. I can understand that there were still uh, more feasible ways of keeping that from happening than keeping all the liquor stores open. Nonetheless, the message it gave to the public is... I mean, just combining the word alcohol with the word essential is not a good public health message. Alcohol is not essential to anybody's lifestyle. You mentioned the health benefits literature. That literature has kind of been collapsing. Um, and the bottom line is that alcohol is uh, connected to more than 200 disease and injury conditions in the human body. Um, it is responsible for over 3 million deaths per year worldwide in the neighborhood of 100,000 deaths a year here in the US. And it's important to understand that prior to the pandemic, that is since the turn of this century, alcohol consumption and alcohol problems had been rising in the US. People may have heard a lot about the diseases of despair, the 
drug overdoses, um, poisonings, and liver cirrhosis. Well, alcohol plays a close role in all of those. And one study looked at 12 million um, medical records uh, and looked particularly at the diseases of despair. Alcohol was growing most slowly, but only because it started at the highest baseline and is responsible for more of those deaths of despair than anything else. And you know, uh, you know, people uh, um, looks like during this pandemic they were using it to self medicate. But actually, w- the next day it it doesn't do it. It's really a depressant, isn't it? Uh, it is a depressant, uh, and it's just it's not a good coping behavior to use alcohol to self medicate. What people may not realize is they are setting in place patterns of drinking that are both psychological and become physiological during this period of time, those patterns will continue past when the COVID stressors uh, have gone away. You said in this article, this BU article, and we're going to put this up on the uh, spot on Facebook page, you said that, um, quote, alcohol is our favorite drug. It's also the drug of choice for people who write the laws. Alcohol is like wallpaper in our society. It's so prevalent, people stop noticing it's there. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. It took me a long time to realize this. Alcohol consumption rises with income, rises with education. It's very different from cigarettes at this point. There was a time in this country where everybody in power was smoking cigarettes. That time is long past. And we have strong regulation of tobacco at this point. It's the opposite case for alcohol. Alcohol is least common, consumption is least common among poor people. Um, But the people who write the laws, the educated, the elites, they drink. It is sewn into their culture to the point where People don't even notice it anymore. And that's what I mean by it's wallpaper. And this works really well for the alcoholic beverage industry. This industry spends billions of dollars a year in the U.S. to keep alcohol the wallpaper of our lives. You you know, Dr. David, uh, it's interesting. I just, um, when it was really wicked hot here, I I went to the movies. And um, you can get alcohol drink in the movie theater. Uh, you know, um, you can get it at uh, a baseball game. You can get it at a basketball game. You can get it in bars and restaurants. I mean, it's and now they have like beer gardens. Increasingly, it's everywhere. You can get it in some places at your hair salon when you get your nails done. The whole idea of alcohol, of alcohol marketing, is to make it an essential part of life to deliver the message that you cannot possibly have a good time without having alcohol in the picture. And uh, in the first place, that's not true. And in the second place, too much alcohol, which is the majority of alcohol consumption. Most alcohol in this country is drunk on occasions when people are having too much. Five or more drinks within two hours for men, four or more drinks within two hours for women. That's the CDC definition of binge drinking. So most drinking occasions, most alcohol is consumed when people are drinking too much. The alcohol companies know that. They say they don't want problematic drinking, and yet they are dependent on it. Right. And and after reading this article, and I hope that our listeners will read it and then and start doing what I did is you, you read, I read this article and, and I started looking around, Dr. David, and all of a sudden I'm noticing 
hard seltzers and advertising for hard seltzers, but on, on buses, on, you know, outside stores, like all over the place. And I, was, I wasn't paying attention. I guess this is like the wallpaper you're talking about. It's just out there and you just get used to it, numb to it. And so you don't realize it. And I'm like, you know something, that's a heck of a lot of advertising um, that's being pushed out there that I'm not really, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it and absorbing it, but I don't even realize the impact that it's having on me as a consumer. Um, I, you know, fascinating. And, and things have changed, like when you said uh, um, about, you know, take-home cocktails and home delivery of alcohol. I, I was on Instagram and an ad came up, uh, uh, have your alcohol delivered to your to your home. And then the next ad was staying so sober. I was like, what? This is unbelievable. So like when did like Pizza Hut, like when you have pizzas delivered to the house, like when are we, why are we getting alcohol delivered to the house? Well, home delivery is something that happened during the pandemic. And in a lot of states, there's a push to make it permanent. It's a real problem with home delivery um, for underage drinking and alcohol is the number one drug among kids still. Um, for underage drinking, the compliance with ID checks for home delivery is absolutely terrible. The California Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission did a study. They found 80% of uh, attempts to deliver happened with no checking of the ID. This is just another way to make it easier for kids to get alcohol. And and we know that the younger, the younger you are that you start consuming alcohol, the more likely as an adult that you it, you will be uh, abusing it. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Uh, young people who start drinking before age 15 compared to those who wait until they're 21, five times more likely to become, uh, to have an alcohol problem later in life, four times more likely to become dependent five times more likely to be involved in a motor vehicle crash, six times more likely to be involved in a fight, uh, and so on. There is a window of vulnerability in the human brain for addiction to substances like alcohol. That window is roughly between the ages of 18 and 25. If you're not addicted to alcohol by age 25, the chances of becoming addictive become much smaller. So, we try to protect our young people from falling into that window. Dr. David, you know, you're, you're all about alcohol policy. Is that one of the reasons, uh, and I don't want to date myself, but, you know, when I was a teenager, the legal drinking age was 18. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's how old I am. So, uh, and now it's 21. Is that the reason because of what you just said that they raised it from age 18 to 21? Yeah, the initial reason was because of drinking driving. We had what were called blood borders. There were states at 18 and states at 21, and kids were driving across the border to get the alcohol and then having alcohol-related crashes as they made their way home. I have colleagues who made their careers in public health based on this experience because it was a giant natural experiment and it was sort of a researcher's field day. So that was the initial reason. We didn't know nearly as much then as we do now about the development of the adolescent brain. And now there's really strong evidence that 
our brains keep developing up until developing up until age 25 and they develop asynchronously so the part of the brain that is most oriented to positive reward impulses uh risk taking develops before the part of the brain that is responsible for long-term planning, executive functions, judgment, et cetera. So again, there's that window of vulnerability for risky products like alcohol. And that's what we're trying to protect young people from. We're also trying to protect them from what I would call the predatory marketing of this industry. And in that the industry knows about this window of vulnerability and I ran something called the Center on Alcohol Marketing and Youth for 15 years at Johns Hopkins and at Georgetown. And we studied over and over again how the industry reaches kids with their marketing. Our most recent publication, this industry in 2016 made $17.5 billion off of the alcohol consumed by young people. That is a huge conflict of interest with the goals of prevention and is part of why we don't like to have the industry involved in prevention. You know, they have a conflict of interest. A major conflict of interest. And you know, what we're seeing, first of all, let me just tell you something. When you said that about going cross borders, uh, you know, I'm a Jersey girl from my accent. And, you know, in New Jersey, drinking was 21, but in New York, it was 18. And then it went all down to 18. So I understand this going across the border. And it's like nothing. I mean, we're talking 10 miles (laughs) to go to get into New York to get that. And and so I I understand that, understand the consequences of that. But the this whole uh, marketing to alcohol and marketing to people in that you know you're stressed, have you relax, um, you know have a drink. You, you often see that you know how do you unwind at night, and a, a lot of this is being marketed to women. And uh, you know during the pandemic, we know that everybody uh, stress level was very very high, but particularly high among women. Uh, with homeschooling, and if they are uh, also trying to work at the same time. And so uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And, and that whole, you know, looks like the, the consumption of women just spiked. And what could be happening long term with that? Yeah, sure. So this move to get women to drink really started to take off in the late 1990s uh, with the distilled spirits companies. They were getting their clocks cleaned by beer. And literally, I read their press. They were saying things like, we need to take a page out of the beer playbook. So one of the things you got is this category of beverages that we call the Alcopops, Smirnoff Ice, Mike's Hard Lemonade. Uh, And at the same time, Absolute was pioneering with uh, flavored vodkas. So you started getting things like cotton candy vodka, birthday cake vodka, whipped cream vodka. These are clearly oriented towards females. The marketing was oriented towards females. So interesting to look at the marketing. Most alcohol marketing still goes towards men because men still do drink more. And the role of women in that marketing, they are the product. They are the object. They have no power. They, I mean, they literally live inside the bottle. They're draped over a cocktail glass. The marketing going towards women, women are empowered, they're agents. It's very much like what we saw with Virginia Slims and tobacco decades ago. So you have this push 
to get women to drink. You have the creation of products, marketing campaigns, etc., just like tobacco. Uh, and it has worked. When we look at drinking, particularly among young people, young people's drinking, high school drinking has been falling in recent years, but the boys have fallen faster than the girls. So at this point, the latest data, girls are drinking, binge drinking more often than boys in high school. This is unprecedented in this country. You know, that's interesting you said about the Virginia Slims, because that's so true that, you know, uh, only men were smoking, and then they made this very slender, you know, uh, feminine cigarette, and you, you became that became almost like an accessory uh, to have this as a woman to be having this, you know, uh, a cigarette. And so now, I mean, like, hello, have we not seen this movie before? They're doing this with the alcohol and making it pink, you know, cocktails and and very feminine type drinks. But the alcohol content is still the same. Yet we just said that women can't metabolize it uh, equally as with men. So this is like a double disaster. They're trying to sew it into the fabric of women's lives. This is the way to deal with things. You've had a hard day. Come home and drink, you know. Everything that's happening, come home and drink, which is really good for the people who are selling alcohol. It's not really good for the health of women. Absolutely not. You said in this article, this BU article, that you, we need to make alcohol these three things, less attractive, less affordable, less available. And when I was looking at this, I said, that's AAA. AAA is Alcohol Anonymous, but he's like attractive, affordable, and available. Can you can you explain that? What do you mean by that? I sure can. So those are actually connected. The World Health Organization does studies of what are the most effective and cost-effective ways to approach health problems. They did this for alcohol, and those are the three areas that they found most effective and cost-effective. The first is affordability, and one of the most effective things we can do to re reduce alcohol consumption and product problems is to increase the taxes on alcohol and thereby increase the price. People respond to price, even heavy drinkers, young people, et cetera. So that's affordability. Can I, can I ask, just ask you something? When, when they increased the tax on smoking, didn't that have an impact on people buying? Oh, absolutely. It's had a huge impact. And again, we've gone the opposite way with alcohol. Most alcohol taxes are based on the volume of the beverage. So the amount of alcohol in a 12 ounce can of beer hasn't changed in 30 years, but the value of the dollar has changed hugely. Every year that there's inflation, this industry gets a tax cut, which is almost every year. So that's affordability. Availability, this is something that we're concerned about during the pandemic because so many things have changed about how alcohol has been made available. We talked about carry out cocktails, about home delivery. Um, we haven't talked about parklets, these expansions of outdoor dining spaces, which later in, night, in the night become outdoor drinking spaces. And in normal times, that would go through a permitting process, a licensing process. There'd be input from the neighborhood, restrictions placed on it, maybe limits. There's been none of that during the pandemic. And once the cat's out of the bag, it's very hard to put it back in. So that's availability. The bottom line is the more available alcohol is, the more people are going to drink and the more you're going to have problems. Huge body of public health literature about that. The last one is attractiveness. 
And this is all about the marketing. And we have our best evidence from young people. I did the latest systematic review, 26 longitudinal long-term studies of young people following them over time. And what the studies almost uniformly find is the more kids are exposed to marketing for alcohol, the more likely they are to drink and even more likely to progress from experimentation to more regular drinking and to binge drinking. Um, so alcohol marketing works certainly for young people. We don't have the studies for adults, but it kind of makes sense. You wouldn't spend billions of dollars a year if your actions weren't making any difference. Wow. So those are three A's. Less, less attractive, less affordable, less available. The AAAs of wisdom of how to get this better under control. Okay, Dr. David, look in your crystal ball. And what do you think is going to happen post-pandemic with this? What do you predict? What I fear is going to happen is that we will have the usual amnesia that we have about alcohol problems. Alcohol kind of pokes its head up when a celebrity has a major problem or there's, you know, a tragedy involving a local young person. And then it disappears back into the wallpaper. And there's huge pressure all the time from the people who sell alcohol to weaken the way that it's regulated. This has happened during the pandemic. We're very concerned that those weakenings will continue and we'll see that rising trend of alcohol problems and consumption that was occurring before the pandemic uh, continue at perhaps an even greater pace afterwards. Right. And if someone does have a problem um, with you know, uh, alcohol, drinking too much, where, where can they go to get some support? So there's a nationwide hotline uh, that you can call the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. NIAAA, if you just Google that, uh, there'll be information on how to get to that uh, 800 number. But really, we will never treat our way out of the problem. Waiting until somebody has a big problem is like trying to uh, deal with heart disease after somebody's had their first heart attack. We want to get ahead of this problem. It is possible to structure our communities, our society, in ways that reduce the likelihood people will run into trouble with alcohol. That's the point of a public health approach here. So once again, less make it less attractive, less affordable, and less available. Dr. Uh, David Jernigan, he's a professor here at Boston University. He is the person to go about this. This whole article, again, I said I'm going to put it on the spot on Facebook page. Um, the alcohol spiked during the pandemic and, and you know, it's, it's going to, you know, continue on. It's a fascinating article and it really opened up my eyes to what Dr. David was just saying of how pervasive this is and you don't even realize it. So once again, Dr. David Jernigan, I want to thank you for being on Spot On. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. 
And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salgy Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?